early in the morning. It's still dark. The kids are asleep by the fire that's long been burned out, but the coals are still going. But Jor can't sleep. It's 2,500 years ago, and Jor finds himself in Babylon, and he paces back and forth. He looks up at the stars in the sky, and he wonders, what should he do? You see, he's heard a rumor that a new king has come to power in Babylon and that he can return home. He can go back to the promised land, although he's never been. He's heard the stories from his grandparents and his great-grandparents about how wonderful Jerusalem is and how amazing this land is, and, and it's their land. But Jorah doesn't know anything about that. He's been born in Babylon. He's been born in captivity, and he's lived there all of his life. And while it's not home, it's comfortable it's familiar. He doesn't have much of a house, but, you know, it's his, and his kids are okay, and his wife is fine, and for them to pick up and leave would take months to get back to Jerusalem. And even though he's here in captivity, and he has a pagan king, and, and he has to pay taxes, and he's a slave, he, he, it's still something that he knows, and he wonders, what should he do? What's God calling him to do? He's heard the stories about the miracles that God's done in the past. And now he wonders if God's calling him to be a part of the story. But this next step is a big one. To leave. To take his family. It impacts more than just him. It impacts generations. And he can't sleep. And he wonders. And he prays. What next step should I take? What's God calling me to do? Where should I go? It's the defining moment of his life. Well, good morning and welcome to our new series. It's a series called Next Steps. And in this series, we're going to talk about how God's call comes to each of us. And down through the generations that every follower of God, every person who's made a commitment to God, has had to make a time in their life a next step. To say to God, I am willing to follow. I don't want to just stay where it's comfortable, but God, I know that you're calling me to go deeper, to go further in my faith than I ever dreamed or ever imagined. And the generations have come to us. And it's our time. What will we do? What step will we make? If this is your first time at Rolling Hills, you picked a great Sunday to come because we're beginning a new series today that I believe is going to be foundational and life-changing for all of us, for us as a church, for us as families, for us as individuals, as God calls us on this journey. If you're watching online, welcome. But God is moving and God is working. And in this series, we're going to study an Old Testament book called the book of Ezra. And it is so good. It is so relevant for where we are today. And just like God called his people back then, God is calling us. So what will we do? Well, let's begin the journey together. If you have a Bible with you today, I invite you up with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. Ezra, Old Testament, kind of midway through. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you have a mobile device, maybe you have an iPad with you, or maybe you have a, a phone or some place you can access the scriptures and follow along with what God's Word has to say. But Ezra is found, kind of, if you're looking in your Bible, First and Second Samuel, First and Kings, First and Chronicles, and then Ezra and Nehemiah. So kind of midway through the Old Testament. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah used to go together in the old Hebrew manuscripts. And it was later on that they were divided out. Um, Ezra is known as the scribe. 
And if you go back into Second Chronicles, you can see how the end of Second Chronicles picks right up into Ezra. And so a lot of people believe Ezra was the one who wrote, you know, First and Second Chronicles and even Ezra. Uh, Ezra doesn't show up until Ezra chapter 7. But he is writing down what God was doing among the people and the decisions that they were having to make and the journey that God was calling them on in their day and their generation. And even though it falls kind of here in the Old Testament, actually chronologically it would fall to the end of the Old Testament. Because the time period would be kind of the last, right before that intertestamental period, that 400 years when God is silent as God is preparing to bring the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so Ezra would fall in line with like books like Daniel, uh, you got Ezra, Nehemiah, you got Haggai, you got Zechariah. So all of that kind of chronologically toward the end of the Old Testament. So this is a defining time. This is a remarkable time. And, and I pray that the scriptures come alive for us as we understand what God's doing in our lives, but what God did in the lives of his people back then. Now let me give you a little timeline to set us up as we get into the book of Ezra. The Bible starts off, and it says in Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, God, okay? In the beginning, God. I mean, before anything else, there is God. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is the beginning, the end. In the beginning, God. You know, the world doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around him. So we center our lives on him. So in the beginning, God. And God, what does he do? He creates. And God created the heavens and the earth. And God created the land and the oceans. And God created the animals. And then God created man. And God created man for relationship with him. And God puts Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden. And God says to Adam and Eve, hey, all of this is yours. All these beautiful, wonderful trees and all this fruit. And it's yours except for this one little tree. Don't eat from that. And what do they do? Just like us, right? Oh, that one tree, you know, <laughs> head over there and sin. And so now you have a holy God and you have a sinful man. But praise God that he doesn't give up on us. He didn't give up on them. And he sets into motion a plan to redeem mankind, a plan to send his son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to atone for our sin, to right that relationship. And so he sets this motion into work, and he calls out a guy named Abraham, and he says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, leave your country and your people and go to a land I will show you. Step out, follow me, go on this journey with me, Abraham, and I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, because I'm carving out a people for myself, a people to whom I can reveal to the world. It's about 2000 BC, and Abraham says yes to God and starts that journey with him. He comes down and God blesses him with descendants and God blesses him with all this livestock and all these riches and, and things are going great. And then the people head down to Egypt and while they're in Egypt, they become slaves. But even during that time of slavery, God's carving out for himself this people and he's saying, you are mine. And in 1450, God sends a man named Moses and Moses says to the Pharaoh, let my people go, right? You know? And so here they go, a million people walking out, a million people being delivered and going on this journey with God, and they walk out of Egypt. And they go through the desert, and they head, meet God at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives the law, and God says, hey, I want you to know how I want you to live. Because you're going to radiate to the world my character and my nature. From you, I will bring the Messiah. And I'm going to take you into this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. So in 1400, they step into the Jordan, and the waters part and they walk into this amazing land. And God blesses the people in an incredible way. And they get into the promised land and things are wonderful for a while. And then they start looking at all these other nations around them and they go, well, they have a king and they have a king. We want a king. God, give us a king. And God says, 
I am your king. You know, and they're like, oh, we don't want you. We want another king. We want a king we can see right here, right now. God says, okay. So he gives him a king named Saul. Things are okay for a while, and then Saul gets off track and walks away from God. And God raises up another man named David. In 1000 BC, God brings David to the throne, and David is known as a man after God's own heart. And God blesses the people, and David, you know, he is not perfect. He makes some huge mistakes, but God's doing great things through David and through the nation of Israel. And one day, David looks out, and he says, why do I have this giant palace, and God's living in a tent? God, can we build a temple to you in the center of our community, a beautiful place that people will come from all over and know that you're at the center of our lives? And God says, David, you're not the one to build it, but your son Solomon can. So Solomon builds this temple in 950 BC, and it's a beautiful place. It's a place of worship. And then Solomon, he takes all these wives, and his wives lead him astray. They start to worship these foreign gods and go after these foreign gods, and Solomon walks away from God. And in 930 BC, the the kingdom's divided. The kingdom is split. You have the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. The ten tribes is called Israel. And then you have the southern kingdom, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And this is where Jerusalem is. This is where the temple is. In 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and conquer the northern kingdom. Because of their disobedience, because of them not following God, they had bad king after bad king after bad king. But Judah in the south, right? Judah, they stay strong. Judah is important, right? Jesus from the from the line of Judah. Judah is holding on, and they have some good kings, but then toward the end, they start to walk away from God, and they move in a different direction, and God, as a loving parent, says, hey, guys, come on. I've, I've got too big of plans for you. You are too important to my redemptive story. Hang in there, and they become disobedient, and so God, like a loving parent, says, I'm going to send you into time out. I'm going to let you think about this now, I'm going to use people, the Babylonians, they're going to come in. And the Babylonians, at 605, they come in and they take some people off into exile. But it's really 586 B.C. that Jerusalem is conquered, the temple destroyed. And that's the end of the first temple period. So Solomon's temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. But that's not the end of God's story. And what we're going to see in the book of Ezra today unfold is God raises up a king named Cyrus, a king of Persia. He comes in in 538 B.C. Cyrus conquers the Babylonians. And all of a sudden there's a new king in town and a new power. And in 516 B.C. the temple is rebuilt. And it's an incredible story of God's faithfulness to his people. So look here in Ezra chapter 1. Pick up here in verse 1, and let's see how God is faithful to his people. It says in verse 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. So the Babylonians have this huge empire, right? I mean, they are ruling the world. And then Cyrus comes in, and we know from historical documents that what Cyrus does, his army, they divert the river that was running through Babylon. And so it drains down to about half of what it is, and they can go under the gates. So the entire army comes into the city of Babylon in the middle of the night, under the gates, through the riverbeds. And they take over the city in the middle of the night. Cyrus is now the king, basically over the world. I mean, the Persian empire is now in place. And it says this in verse 2, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. So he issues this proclamation the first year he's king, and he says, here's the proclamation. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you 
May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold and with goods and livestock and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now this is crazy, right? I mean, this just didn't happen. If you were a nation and you were conquered, you're done. Game over, right? I mean, nobody lets them go back and rebuild their city and rebuild their walls and their God. It just doesn't happen. Go through the Old Testament. You remember Israel's enemies? I mean, where are the Philistines today? Done, right? The Amorites. I mean, you just go through and list them. They're done. But God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to his promise. And it says, right in verse 1, this is to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet. So what was that word? Go with me over to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was written around 620-615 BC. So this is the time that Judah was starting to stray from God and God's getting their attention. He raises up this prophet named Jeremiah and Jeremiah says to them, therefore the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. And against all the surrounding nations, I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. How many? Seventy years. 70 years, that's important, right? But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt. So this was written around 620, 615 BC. And he says, for 70 years, I'm gonna put you in time out. Do the math, 586 BC, the temple's destroyed. It's rebuilt, 516 BC. 70 years. God is faithful to his people. And God says, I just want you to know I love you. I want to get your attention. Look over in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. This is amazing to me. I love this. Isaiah 44 verse 28. Now Isaiah was written even before Jeremiah was written. Okay, So this is 150 years before Cyrus becomes the king or anything else. And it says in Isaiah 44 verse 28. Who says of Cyrus... I mean, God calls the guy by name 150 years before. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. God says, I'm going to use this guy, Cyrus, for my name and for my glory. You see, I don't believe in coincidences. I just don't. I believe in God incidences. You know, as you look back over your life... You can see times that you were in trouble, times that were hard, times that were difficult. And you're like, I have no clue what's going to happen here. God, help. And as you look back over your life, you can see how God has brought you through time and time and time again. It's not just a coincidence. God is faithful to his people. God will take care of you. God will provide for you. God loves you. And we see it in his word over and over again. 
Now we look at this, we go, why would Cyrus do this? I mean, why would Cyrus go, okay, all of you guys can go back if you want to, rebuild the temple. Why would he do this? Well, I think Cyrus was smart. I think he learned. The last king of Babylon was a guy named Belshazzar. Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, if you go to the book of Daniel, Belshazzar one night was pretty prideful and arrogant. It was kind of all about him, right? He was the king of the world. And so one night he has this giant party. Actually an orgy, you know, but it kind of just, the whole deal was happening back then. And, and he is drunk, he's going crazy, and he says, hey, let's go get all the things from the temple of God that my father Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple. Bring them in. It's on the house, the gold goblets and the silver plates and all those things. We're going to live it up. And they're having this giant party with the things from the temple of God. And God's not real happy about it. And so God shows up, if you read in the book of Daniel. And the Bible says that during the party, this hand starts writing on the wall. That would be pretty freaky, right? Okay, you know, so, so this figure of God is writing on the wall. This hand's writing right there. And it says in Scripture, everybody's scared to death. I mean, they're literally just shaking in their boots. And they're looking at this. And they don't have a clue what it says. And so they go, go get the guy Daniel. We took him out of, you know, where he was there. Maybe he knows. And so Daniel comes up. And they say, Daniel, what does it say? And Daniel's like, do you really want to know? And they're like, yeah. And he looks at the king. He says, it says this. The scales have been tipped. And you've been found guilty. And your kingdom will be taken from you. The last king of Babylon, right? Cyrus, the king of Persia, comes in and he conquers. And I think Cyrus is like, whoa, he is the God of all creation. And I'm going to humble myself before him. I'm going to respect him. Hey, if you're one of his people, you go back and you can rebuild the temple. Unbelievable. I mean, think about it. If you were a captive... If you were there, you thought your life was done. You were a slave for the rest of your life. And now you're free. You could go back to your homeland, to the houses of your grandparents, your great-great-great-grandparents, to your land. It was unbelievable. What do you think is impossible in your life? Maybe you're here today and you just think, there's some things that are impossible. Maybe for you, you, you feel trapped and you're just trapped financially. And you think it's impossible for you to ever be out of debt. For you to ever have any kind of financial freedom in your life. And man, it just weighs on you. Maybe for you, you just think it's impossible to have a healthy marriage. It's a struggle. And it's hard and it's difficult. And, and for you today, you're just like, God. Maybe for you, you've got a kid who's wayward. And you're praying like crazy. Maybe for you, it's a, it's a dream. And you've got this dream that's out there. And you just keep, man, you want to do it. But there's something that holds you back. And you think it's impossible for you to ever do it. I want you to hear this. The Bible says, nothing is impossible with God. And in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, the Apostle Paul says, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Never give up. Never give up because where there is God, there will be a miracle that will happen. And you hold on to him because God is faithful to his people. Man, I love that. So thankful for our God. Here, look at point number two. This is so good. Number two, it says this, that God has incredible plans for your life when you step out for him. God has incredible plans. Pick up at verse five. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priest and Levites 
And look at this kind of parenthetical statements thrown in there, right? Everyone whose heart God had moved. Everyone whose heart God had moved. Prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted with them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by Mirthadath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shabazzar, the prince of Judah. Now, Shabazzar is also Zerubbabel. Okay, Shabazzar is kind of his Babylonian name. But Zerubbabel is the one who's going to lead the people back. He's going to be the one to rebuild the temple. It says, this was the inventory. And it talks about the gold dishes and the silver dishes. And then verse 11, it says, in all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shabazzar brought all these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Think about that statement, right? Everyone whose heart God had moved. Everyone whose heart God had moved. You see, when you make a commitment to God, when you say yes as God draws you to himself and you enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son, God places within you his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads you and guides you. And you know this, right? I know this. There's times in my life when I'm like, I should do this. You know, it doesn't make sense, but there's something in me that says, yes, I should do this. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. There's other times I'm going, I shouldn't do this, right? I mean, I, I, I just shouldn't, I shouldn't do this. You know, I, I'm thinking this, or I want to say this, or, I'm, you know, this is not right. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. Everyone whose heart God had moved. See, God's calling in your life and God's calling in my life is, is to obedience. And we all have this decision to make, you know. When God prompts our hearts, do we stay or do we step? Do we stay or do we follow? Every one of us has those decisions in our lives. What will we do as God calls us? Will we be obedient? Because the fact is this, you can reject God. And many people do. You can quench, as the Bible says, the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Spirit and just say, no, 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 no. I'm comfortable. It's easy. I, I don't want to step out. I like where I am right now. And even though it's hard, it's difficult, it's known. And God's going, oh, but I have so much more for you. Look at for the people who said yes. I mean, look at what they experienced. One, they experienced freedom. You know, they were exiles. They were dead in the water. Game over. Now they have freedom. Number two, look at verse six. What does it say? It says... All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts. What? I mean, the people who said yes, that we're going to go back, people were like, here, take this. Here's some gold. Here's some silver. Here's some money for your journey. Are you kidding me? Here's the great thing about God. When God moves in your heart, and God calls you to obedience, and God calls you to take a next step, God will always fund it. I mean, I've seen him do it time and time and time again. People come up and they'll say, Jeff, I feel called to go on this mission trip. But I have no idea how I'm going to pay for it. And I'm like, is God calling you to go? Yeah, God will fund it. And they're like, what? I'm like, just trust him. I mean, I'm just telling you, if you feel like God's calling, do it. It's awesome to watch. I mean, I love this because then they'll start, you know, send out letters to friends or to family, say, will you pray for me? And they'll come back and they'll say, you wouldn't believe it. 
I got this rebate check in the mail. I had no idea where that came from. I, I got this insurance policy that came, like what? Where did that happen? This person I barely even know. I just heard at work that I was going to serve orphans and they wrote me a check. I'm like speechless and I'm like, I'm not. You know, I mean, I've seen it time and time again when God calls you to adopt, when God calls you to go, when God calls you to give. God funds it. And it's incredible. And then look, verse 7, it says, Moreover, moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar carried away. Now what king is going to say, here, take the gold, take the silver, take, you know, take it all back. 5,400 articles of gold and silver. And he just, take it. Take it back. That stuff doesn't happen. Unless you're with God. <laughs> And when you're with God, you see God do what only God could do. And that's the awesome part. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, what saves a man is to take one step and then another. And isn't that true? That's the spiritual journey. We take a step. We take a step of faith. We come to God as God draws us to himself and we say yes to Christ. We answer that invitation to follow Jesus. Then we take another step, a step of repentance, a step of baptism. Then we take another step, a step of following, a step of being in a small group, a step of being at church, a step of being disciple. And then we, all of a sudden we start walking with God and I'm stepping into my life and I'm becoming a man or a woman after God's heart. I'm becoming a person who loves the Lord on a daily basis and I, I'm seeking his word and I'm seeking his truth. And we just start this journey with the Lord. And the awesome part is there is joy in the journey. There's joy as you follow God and pretty soon you're just like, okay, God, wherever you call me to go, I'll go because this is awesome. This is amazing. You know, for the exiles who went back, there's a great psalm, Psalm 126. It tells us the song that they sang. As they were going back, it says, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, and Zion is Jerusalem, right? So when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Man, when you're on that journey with God, you're so excited. You can imagine these people coming out of captivity and they're heading back and they start to get closer to Jerusalem and they're just like, yeah, I mean, we couldn't script this. There is no possible way, but we're going home. We're going back. See, at Rolling Hills, we've seen God do miracle after miracle after miracle. And there is just joy in the journey. Core value number five, you know, for us as a church, church should be enjoyable. Joy will permeate all we do. Doesn't mean everything's perfect. Doesn't mean everything's right. But it means this, that God is with us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And there is joy in the journey as we follow him. Here's point number three. As God blesses, we want to respond back to him. As God blesses, we want to respond back to him. Look at chapter two. Now these are the people of the province who came up from captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, and the company was Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, and it lists all of these people. And it lists these people. And, and you go through and you see these names. And there are the names of the heads of the family and all the people that were impacted. Their names are there. And all through the, Nehemiah, you have the same list of these names. 
And you come over here and it says in verse 64, the whole company numbered 42,360. Besides the 7,337 men servants and maid servants, and they also had 200 men and women singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. I love how precise the Bible is, right? I mean, it's amazing. It tells us there are donkeys that were with them and the camels that were with them. But it tells us everybody who went back. And you look at the heads of these households. You look at the names of these people and their families. You know what? We don't have a record of the people who stayed. We don't even know who their names. But the people who stepped out in obedience 2,500 years later, their names and their family names are in the Bible. There's something about being on a journey with God. Something about watching him do what only God can do. Look what it says here in verse 68. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of family gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. They come back to Jerusalem, and before they do anything else, right? Before they go, hey, where are we going to live? Where's my home? You know, I'm going to go plant some crops. Before they do anything else, they get to Jerusalem, and they come there, and they worship. They respond back to God. They have this time of praise and adoration to God, just saying, God, it's you. All glory to you. And it says that the heads of families. I just want to say something real quick. If you're the head of a family... If you're a husband or a father or if you're a single mother or a grandparent, if you're the head of a family today, guys, listen, you have an incredible calling. And you have an incredible privilege, but also an incredible responsibility. Because your obedience or your disobedience, it doesn't just impact you. It impacts generations. It impacts generations. And I want you to know, I'm praying for you I believe in you. But you have a huge part to play in God's story. When the heads of families, they come in, and the first thing they do is they worship. And they just say to everybody, I want you to know that it's God. It's God who's leading our family. It's God who's leading our people. It is God. And my life, my life is all about him. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Now, a lot of times what we do is we go after all the other things, right? (laughs) You know, like if I can get enough money and I have this in my bank account or my retirement account, or if I can, you know, have this car, I can get a bigger house, or if I get this better job or I get this raise, I'm going to chase after all these things. And God goes, no, 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 no. Seek first. Seek first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. May the Lord God Almighty be on the throne of your heart. May he be number one in your life. And all these other things will come into place. All these other things will be added unto you. But you get this relationship right here. You focus here and watch God take care of the rest. The people who came out of captivity, they had three decisions to make. One, they had a decision to make to reach out. Am I going to take a step to reach out? Or am I going to stay where it's comfortable? Am I going to stay where it's easy? And even though it's broken and it's hard and it's difficult, am I going to stay there or am I going to take a step 
to go on a journey with God. The second thing was to grow up, right? Am I going to take a step to mature in my faith? Am I going to trust God with my life? There's an old hymn, you know, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Am I going to trust? And the third is, am I going to give all? Everything in my life for the glory of God. Now, when they offered these offerings at the temple, where did they get that? All their neighbors, all their friends, right? They loaded them all up and said, hey, take this and give it back. Everything they have and everything they had came from God. And so it's just a worship is a response back to God for who he is and for what he's done in our lives. I love this quote by Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen says, the sign of God's presence with you now is that your feet are where you did not expect them to be. The sign of God's presence with you now is that your feet are where you did not expect them to be. Look at verse 70. The priests and the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people. And the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. Can you imagine after they had this time of worship? And then they go back to the home of their great-grandparents or their great-great-great-grandparents and they walk into these homes and they see the fields and they see the vineyards and they sit down and they're just like, wow. A few months ago, I was a slave. A few months ago, I had no hope. I had no chance. And look where my feet are now. Look what God has done. Maybe for you, you can look back in your own personal story and say, wow, Look where my feet are now. I'm in church. I mean, wow, you look at my life a few years ago, you think, there's no way, but, but here I am. God is moving. God is working. Maybe I'm in a small group. I never dreamed I'd be in a small group. Maybe I'm going on a mission trip. I never dreamed I would do that. Maybe, you know, I'm in this marriage, and maybe I have these kids. And maybe I never dreamed, but this is God working in my life. And this is God's calling in my life. And I want to go forward in him. I want to trust him. You know what I love? If you look in Ezra chapter 2, verse 18, there's a guy there named Jorah. Remember at the beginning? And Jorah is there, and Jorah has 112 people who've been impacted because of his obedience. Because he said, I'm going to step out, and I'm going to follow, and I'm going to go with God. Eight years ago, there's a guy in our church named Darren Clark. And Darren is the father of four boys. And, and Darren said, hey, guys, let's, let's play football in our backyard and had just a pickup game. There were 15 guys and just all playing together. And Darren started to say, what if I did this like for our whole community? What difference would it make if we opened it up and had fathers and sons playing? What impact would that be on our community today? Yesterday, we had the Father Son Bowl. 1,162 players across the street. Impacted because Darren and Carrie just said, hey, what can we do? What step can we take? What difference can we make? Darren and Carrie got an email last week from a lady and she said, Darren and Carrie, I want you to know how much I appreciate you. I'm a 48-year-old widow. I have a five-year-old son. My son loves sports. Yesterday, a neighbor walked across the street and asked if my son wanted to play with me at the Father's Sub Bowl. He wanted to take my son to play. I was so excited. I couldn't believe that he did that. 
And do you know what the father's son bowl is going to be on my son's sixth birthday? He is so excited about it. The woman wrote, I just want to thank you for doing this. The only thing that would be better is if my son's father would be able to play with him. But as I look back, I can see how God is taking care of us, even in these times. And then she ended it, thank you for your obedience. Thank you for your obedience. And I just thought about Darren and Carrie when I read that email, and I just thought, eight years ago, they had no clue that some boy was going to celebrate his sixth birthday at the Father's Son Bowl. They had no clue because of their obedience to step out that God would use them in the life of a kid who we all circled up yesterday and sang happy birthday to at the middle of the Father's Son Bowl. That's powerful. And that's obedience. And that's the call of God that comes to you and to me. For every one of us. You know, when I look at Rolling Hills and what God's done, it's been an incredible journey. I mean, for 11 years, God is blessed. But I really feel like chapter one, God is closing. And God is saying, I'm starting a new chapter. And you can either look back and see all the things I've done, and you can hear the story, or you can be the story. And we're together, and we're a part of something that only God could do. And we're locking arms, and we're going forward. And we're saying, God, my life, my life for you, my life for your name. And so I want to encourage you, over these next six weeks, I want to just challenge you to put a stake in the ground and say, God, I'm willing to take a next step. I'm willing to take a next step to reach out, whatever that means, right? And whether it's walking across the street and meeting a neighbor or whether it's going someplace else in the world. And God, I want you to know I'm willing to take a step to grow up I want to mature my faith. I don't want to just stay over here where it's comfortable and it's easy. I want to trust you, God. I want to grow. And I want to challenge you to give all. To just trust God can do immeasurably more in your life. God loves you. God loves you. And he wants you to have a great life. He wants you to fulfill your purpose that he created you for. He wants you to have a great marriage. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be a wonderful parent or grandparent. But the call of God comes to us. This is our time. And this is our defining moment. Will you step out? Will you trust? I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Right where you are. What's God saying to you today? What next step is God calling you to make? Maybe it's a next step of salvation. Maybe you're here and you've never given your heart, your life to Jesus Christ. Guys, why not today? Most important decision you'll ever make. As God draws you to himself to say yes, that's where it all begins. Or maybe for you today, you just say, listen, today I'm going to get serious about my faith. I'm following Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit prompts my heart, I'm going to be obedient, whatever that is. Maybe for you today, you just say, you know what? I'm going to work on my marriage. I'm going to love my spouse unconditionally. Or I'm going to love my kids, or I'm going to love my family. But whatever it is today, 
that God is calling you to do. Be faithful. Trust. Follow.